I'm JP Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Still one of the greatest speeches in cinema history. I will fight someone for that. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're Americans. We, we do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, Independence Day, the blockbuster movie uh this was one of the movies that we had thought about doing for disaster month last year but we decided you know what let's hold off this till we get to july and then we can do it then and then we'd end up doing a different roland emmerich disaster movie for that which was uh day after tomorrow which, um, if you watch enough Roland Emmerich disaster movies, you start to notice a pattern. Yeah, but this was kind of the Roland Emmerich movie that launched Roland Emmerich for most people. Yes, Stargate had come out before this, and that made a big impression on a certain amount of us. Myself it included. They got a really successful TV spinoff. Yeah, and I mean, I am a huge Stargate fan. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned it the first time we talked about Roland Emmerich. Uh, Stargate is part of the reason I have one of my college degrees, you know. So, huge Stargate fan. But this, this film, Independence Day, was the one that put Emmerich on the map as big Hollywood director. And he, there were, I don't know if you remember at the time, because 96, when this hit, the, the kind of mid-90s were not a great time for sci-fi. Yeah, we'll 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 talk more when we get to like Doctor Who and stuff at that point. <laughs> yeah, but as far as like big budget sci-fi, kind of the biggest thing we had that you could maybe roll into the sci-fi legacy at the time was Jurassic Park, I guess. Which was more of a creature feature. I mean, it did have sci-fi elements in it, of course, because you had the cloning and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it it fits in there. But aliens and stuff were more the small screen. X-Files had just started right around that time. Uh, on TV, and it was starting to catch big, and we had, you know, 
Star Trek was more in the DS9 era, and it was considered on the downswing, uh, which, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty on that one. But people considered sci-fi really in a slump. We were just a few years away from Star Wars Episode One really lighting the fire again. Yeah. So... This was in that lull. So if you were into sci-fi in the sense of aliens and spaceships sci-fi, not a lot there for you unless you were going home and watching X-Files or the really obscure shows like your sci-factors and stuff on TV or... Sequest. <laughs> well, I mean, that was my other big show, because uh, it also had a linguist on it. Uh, so, you know, my Stargate, my Sequest, uh, those were my jams, because they had linguists on them, and then I went was and got B5 a degree in linguistics. Was B5 at this point? Um, yeah, B5 was running at this point, you know. So, But again, B5 was... Uh, Babylon 5, for those who don't know. Yeah, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Babylon 5, for our listener who knows nothing about Babylon 5, ahem, ahem. Um, But yeah, uh, Babylon 5 was a syndicated show. So, like, in my area, we never knew, um, of course, until the fifth season when it got its permanent, quote-unquote, home on TNT for its final season, uh, Babylon 5, you never knew when it was going to air. And so it would always air at like 2 a.m. on this station for a few weeks and then 3 a.m. on a completely different station for a month and a half. And you know, like, so it was really weird being a fan of that show in particular because it would constantly change distributors even in the middle of a season sometimes. Uh, and so sci-fi fan in at this point in the 90s was very difficult to find things to be into um, if you liked Aliens. This was also, I forget the exact year it came out, but this was also the time that that very strange um, alien autopsy film that Jonathan Frakes hosted in the U.S. Yeah, it was on TV a lot. I remember that. Yeah, it initially aired on the Fox television network. Um, and it was eventually revealed to be a hoax put together by two British men using some very strange special effects and stuff. But when it was presented to the American audience, at least, it was, you know, alien autopsy is this factor fiction, and they got Jonathan Frakes to host it, and no one was quite sure, at least, you know, the general audience, no one was quite sure where the footage came from or why they were showing it, or, you know, it was presented as this found footage mystery thing uh and you know this was before the the internet worked in the same way it does now so we didn't really have social media you had a couple of 
message boards or chat rooms that you could go on and the usenet chat like, rooms back in the day yeah people would go like well i heard from a guy on another usenet board that said that he heard from a guy on you know some chat room on yahoo that he heard from a guy that you know like I mean, for Jonathan Franks, he did it did spin off into Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, where he, where everyone now gets those memes of him asking questions. Yeah, and that was that was a pretty interesting show. But uh, it it is funny to go back and watch that show now and go like, wow, what were we thinking? And then remember that kind of most of the we that was the audience of that show were like. 12 to 16 at the time you mm. know <laughs> that's kind of fair the, enough the target audience of that show so be a little kind in retrospect when you see clips of that on youtube and you go like who were watching who was watching this show who fell for this it i mean like, it did air during the family hour of the prime time television yeah it was like i think most of the people who were the the target audience of that show were like a preteen to to teen audiences who didn't quite have our our you know scientific goggles on yet to figure out what was going on but you know i was super into all that stuff when i was you know like in 96 when i was the target age for all these like weird little conspiracy theories about area 51 and you know hmm. um i even knew a guy through like you know a family friend or whatever who was in the air force and he got posted to Nellis which is the air force base right connected to uh what is called area 51 uh and he came back and reported and he was like it's super boring out there seriously it's like a whole bunch of kitschy tourist stuff and uh you are more likely to be attacked by scorpions than aliens and wow it is super boring like unless you just want like some stuff that was like i visited area 51 and all i got was this lousy t-shirt he's like if you want that go go visit it one day and he's like it, it's really not worth it otherwise i mean and and you know to to now you say that one year later that same premise is gives us the basis of men in black yeah, which took it the comedy route. Which honestly seems to have worked better. I mean, because uh, later this same year that Independence Day comes out, we essentially get the parody version of the same movie in Mars Attacks. Even though Mars Attacks is based off of a, a pre-existing property. It's almost beat for beat the same movie, just play for comedy. Well, the thing is, is that, I mean, we're not telling you anything that you don't know. We're not going to give you the beat by beat of Independence Day because literally everyone from the moment they were a fetus, if you were born after 1996, you have seen this movie. We're releasing this 4th <laughs> of July weekend. You've probably seen this movie at least once this weekend. Yeah, I mean... This is at least a once a year rewatch for us since 1996. Mm -hmm. And I mean us as a a nation. 
Like if you if you are American or live in America or have been to America during July Fourth weekend, somewhere, at any somewhere, point, <laughs> some network is airing Independence Day. Yeah, um, you cannot escape this movie. Uh, from July third, nineteen ninety six, to now. But it was it was kind of fascinating in the way they set it up because this was a really good marketing campaign. Go ahead. Will Smith had been, of course, the Fresh Prince Bel Air, and I'm had back from his, last week <laughs> had his his rap career and stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then he had done Bad Boys. Which hit big with a certain audience. Like if you were into Michael Bay buddy cop films, you were really into that. I did not see that before I saw Independence Day. Because that's not my type of movie. I'm not really into buddy cop films. I've seen a few of them. They are not really my thing. Michael Bay movies also not particularly my thing yeah so that combination just was not going to work for me had nothing to do with the actors both of whom i like in other movies but buddy cop films not my thing michael bay films not much my thing not my movie and you know likewise will smith would do men in black the following year which started that trend of Summer blockbuster Will Smith versus Aliens. Yeah. But it did make the, the transition from we like Will Smith as Fresh Prince. Now we like Will Smith in movies. And this was his next big movie. Okay. We've proved that he can be a box office hit. Um, and and that wasn't the first movie he did. I'm not saying that. It was just the first big budget, you know, huge movie that he was the star of it. Um, he had been in like Six Degrees of Separation before that. Um, so it's it's not his first movie, but it's his first like, hey, I am the lead in this movie. Um, so he's, he's up there and they are selling this movie, you know, Independence Day, basically on him and Jeff Goldblum, who had just come off of being in Jurassic Park, which was the biggest thing ever. To the point right where that, right to the point time. where Goldblum's character in this movie quotes his character from Jurassic Park. Must go faster, must go faster. Which got the biggest laugh in the theater when I saw it. Um but the the thing about it is is that you had like here's Will Smith coming off a big project here's Jeff Goldblum coming off a big project and it's coming out on the date it's 
set. And that was the entire marketing campaign at the time. ID4. Yeah, it was also one of the first movies in that era to use that, like, shortening of the... I mean, Men in Black would use it. M-I-B, X-2. But it really all comes back to kind of right off T2, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Well, yeah, the, the Terminator, you know, that T2 thing would do it, but uh, it didn't really start the trend in the way Independence Day did. And when Independence Day did it, when, when they first started to do it in, in the marketing, we mocked it. Yeah, like, I, before it hit theaters, they were like, Independence Day, ID4. And we were like... Well, what happened to ID3, 2, and 1? Yeah, because we were like, well, you know, th- this isn't the fourth in a series. Why are you calling... Like, at least T2 was, like, the sequel to T, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Mighty Ducks 2 was called D2, but it was still Mighty Ducks 2. Yeah. Um. So, it wasn't the first movie ever, but... It hit so big that it started a trend after that, where now everything has to have the, the you know, the little initialisms in the background, and sometimes they don't make sense, and then eventually you get the Fast and the Furious franchise. The thing is, is that we knew so little about this movie when the trailer hit. I don't know if you remember seeing the trailer for the first time in the theater. I I think the trailer was just them blowing up the White House. Um, I I think it was the the Empire State Building in the first trailer. Something like that. But they didn't. Yeah, even show, but they did not show the. It's very similar to what Emmerich would do the a few years later with Godzilla. Not showing the monster in the trailer, meaning that if you wanted to see what these creatures look like, you had to go to the theater. And and Emmerich is hoping and praying that the toys don't spoil the movie. Because, boy, were they toys for this movie. I had a few. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did as well. But the the thing is, is that that first teaser trailer... I'm not even sure we knew it was aliens. It was just like July 2nd, they arrive. July 3rd, they attack. July 4th, we fight back. And there was like a shadow or something. So we were like, is this another Godzilla movie or something? Or like, or, or like is this a Godzilla movie? Because we had heard they were making a Godzilla movie. Uh, possibly in the works, because there had been rumors before, you know, he got attached to the Godzilla movie Mm -hmm. uh, and stuff. So there had been rumors and we were like, oh, so is this the Godzilla movie? And then eventually there was like a laser and something blowing up. And we're like, well, that could still be a Godzilla movie. And like, you know, and like, I'm not even sure in that initial teaser trailer, we knew that was Aliens. Because it was just like something's arrived or something, you know. It really wouldn't be until that first poster that is still used to this day of the spaceship firing the laser down onto the White House. Yeah, but 
I thought it was really savvy marketing because you couldn't sell a movie on the basis of aliens at the time because aliens weren't a big thing. Like, come see our big sci-fi blockbuster, It's Got Aliens, just wasn't a selling point. And we knew Will Smith could carry a movie, but we didn't know if Will Smith could carry, like, more than than one movie, you know, and, and with, with bad boys, he had, he had another established star to lean off of. And even though you got Jeff Goldblum in this and a bunch of other people, you know, this ended up being like an all-star cast kind of thing here. Ensemble, at least, if, if you don't consider yeah. a lot, of, if you don't consider a lot of people A-list stars, you would it's an ensemble, you know, the, the story splits off at various times in the movie to focus on certain characters. Yeah, I mean, Stargate was not your typical what we would come to know as a Roland Emmerich film because it was very much just like here's two characters and their adventure. But Independence Day is very much the typical Roland Emmerich film as in it's a cast of thousands and there's 17 different storylines and we bounce around between all of them and stuff gets blowed up. And know? we covered, you know, we covered that that style of storytelling back when we did Disaster Month. And it was I mean, it wasn't a style that Emmerich invented, but that was the style he was going for. Yeah, and this was this was definitely him, you know, pulling from that 70s disaster style. Um, and there's the scene at the beginning, and I had kind of forgotten about it because it's so blink and you miss it. And usually when this comes on, I remember the the dialogue and, you know, everything else of the movie so well that I just have it on in the background and I'm not paying attention to the particulars that I had kind of forgotten that the kids in the RV are watching day. The earth stood still the fifties version uh, when the uh, movie starts and then they see the, the news story break in about like, Oh, we've got disturbances over Russia and stuff. So Roland is directly going like, hey, I'm I'm calling back to these older alien films of the 50s. Except that he's doing kind of a different thing, which is that the point of day the earth stood still is that the aliens show up and are like hey humans you're super violent cut it out or we'll come back and we'll take all your weapons away you know mm -hmm. like it's it's the the aliens seeing the start of the cold war it's them seeing us developing nukes and they're gonna be like look you can't have nukes and a space program. We will not allow that. You are too dangerous to have both. You you can have a space program or you can stay on your planet and bomb each other. We will not allow you to go into space and bomb us. So choose. 
And in this one, the aliens are clearly the villains. They, uh, as you're described in the movie, they're parasites. They go from world to world, sucking up their natural resources till there's nothing left. Because there is no, you know, they, they don't want a single question in the audience's mind that the Earthlings are the good guys. And not just the Earthlings. Americans. The Americans, yes. Yeah, this is such a bizarrely... America F.E.A. movie that is made by a German. To the point where all of the main characters, everything we see is happening in the United States up until like the third act where we actually start seeing the other military operations around the world. Oh, hey, the Americans thought of an idea that we can use. And you get the British going like, well, it's about bloody time. The rest of the world has been sitting with its thumb up its ass waiting for the Americans to come up with a plan. Glad they have. We would have just sat here and died. Like, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> but what's so funny is if you watch Roland Emmerich movies, that is what happens in them. Every time. I mean, we they could... Day after tomorrow, it's essentially the same thing, even though they try to focus on, you know, the group of the, the, the Scott. I think they're the Scottish guys in Day After Tomorrow before they freeze to death. Well, yeah, but the Scottish guys literally sit there and go like, well, it's a shame the Americans couldn't get their shit together. Let's have a drink and celebrate death. Like... <laughs> What is it, 2012 or whatever? Yeah. Like, they've been building... Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that movie, but if I remember correctly, it's like they've been building the arcs on, like, you know, the Himalayas or whatever, because it's the highest point in the planet, and they think it's going to be flooded last. But it was all, like, an American plan funded by American billionaires or something. <laughs> And the rest of the world was like, we're just going to ignore the doomsday prophecy until, like, something happens. And then they're like, well, gee, aren't we glad the Americans had a plan? Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I think maybe uh, Roland has, I think Roland has gotten American citizenship after he became, you know, a, a filmmaker or whatever. But, like, every one of his films is like, and then the Americans showed up. Glad that happened. Like, <laughs> so, like, I don't know. I don't know what, like, the term is for, like, a weeaboo, but for, like, America. <laughs> yeah. But whatever that is, Roland is the president of the fan club, and it shows up in every one of his movies and it's really really not a good look for you dude <laughs> yeah get a new look yeah but there was one joke i remember from this movie out of all the other jokes we've talked about there's one joke that came from this movie that i remember so well every time i watch this movie i think of this joke is that the most unbelievable part of this movie is not the aliens. It's not the entire country coming together to defend the planet from aliens. 
It's that this is 1996, and it's completely impossible for the average person to believe that the president of the United States is faithful to his wife. Because we had just had the Clinton scandal. Yeah, that that one also... It's that Jeff Goldblum uses Apple technology, and I have absolute... Um, you will never convince me that Apple technology can interface with anything like on Earth, much less alien technology that just showed the hell up. I can't get Apple technology to interface with other Apple products. You're not telling me this dude takes an Apple laptop up to a mothership and is like, yo, interface with that and send like a troll gif to the mothership and it's like yeah sure thing dude no problemo you don't want to believe that steve jobs was an alien and all he did was just go home uh no (laughs) i just i i barely believe steve jobs knew anything about computers at this point (laughs) (laughs) the uh the point is though is that the most believable thing in the movie to me, on the complete other hand, is that the first thing they say is, alien ships have shown up over the skies of America, please stop shooting at them. And I was like, yeah, no, that that is the thing that would happen. Especially in America. Well, I mean, that's what I mean, because we only see the American point of view. There is a point at the beginning of the movie where they're like, our first contact with an alien ship is that it showed up over Russia. Oh, no, wait, we've got one over America. Yeah, forget about Russia. And it's never mentioned again. <laughs> the only time we see Russia after that point is at the end of the movie where the Russians are like, well, what took the Americans so damn long? We've been waiting an entire movie for them to have a plan. But, you know, you know, I mean, you know, like aliens show up in sky- in the skies, you know, you're going to have... Every, every, you know... Yeah, every militia in America, which is a bunch of them... With their little AR-15s trying to shoot down an alien spaceship. And the thing is, is this was made when that wasn't even the thing. Okay? This would have just been like a drunk redneck with a hunting rifle... Wandering outside or like some some guy with his nine or whatever just being like, hey, look, an alien. Betcha I can hit it from here. Betcha you can't. All right, let's see. Like, that would just be it. Like, now it would be worse. But like, even then, like, I was sitting in the theater and they were like, Please do not shoot at the aliens. You may start an interstellar war. And the first thing in my brain was like, yep, that is the most realistic thing in this movie. Nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But. What were these? What was this plan with the helicopter with the lights? That like, was him trying to be Spielberg and not uh, doing it right. Close Encounter. I mean, they mentioned close yeah. Encounters that was by that name. was trying to be Close Encounters. But that was music. This is lights. Well, the thing is, is 
a lot of people forget that there is a corresponding light board at Devil's Tower in uh, Close Encounters. When they get there and the alien ship lands and they commence that whole really awesome sequence with the John Williams music and everything, there is a light board behind them that is showing a visual representation of the notes. My theory has always been this is Roland Emmerich trying to do a shortened version of this being like, well, why didn't they try to communicate with the aliens? Get all close encounters of this. Play some music at them. Do some blinky lights, you know, like hold up a sign. Be like, welcome, aliens. We want to communicate with you. Do interpretive dance, you know. Like Roland is trying to show earlier in the movie that we tried to communicate. And got shot at. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they do this thing. I I have never seen anybody say like, well, in the, you know, international language of blinky lights, that means whatever. Um, I've never recognized it as anything visual and it's only up there for a few seconds. Uh, so I don't know if it actually says anything. And over the years, I've never seen a translation for what it's supposed to say. Maybe and I've watched a lot of behind the scenes stuff on this. Maybe it's not just supposed to say anything. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's just like a, a random pretty light pattern. Uh, if anybody knows differently, please let me know, because I've always wondered if that is supposed to be a translatable visual, you know, communication pattern. Um, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it is a translatable, you know, it, it is a visual representation of the, the musical notes. Um, and it is supposed to be an actual, you know, communication pattern. But the, uh, the one here, I don't think is supposed to be. Uh, which I'm not saying that Roland is the type of person that's just like, eh, forget about it, because for Stargate, they actually, like, recreated ancient Egyptians, so the man can put in the work. Let's just point that out. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think that was his, his way of trying to say, like, look, we tried, but we're not going to spend too much time on it, you know? Um because later in the scene with Dr. Oaken, um, it is very clearly pointed out that the aliens are like, no communication, no, you no know. No peace, just die. No, no peace, just, just die. Um, fun fact, I always thought Dr. Oaken died in this film. Me too. I thought because you know they have the tentacle around his neck, and it's. I thought he was dead, but and it looks I, like Adam Baldwin. I think it's Adam Baldwin in that scene goes over to um, check him for signs of life, and it looks like he moves on very quickly. Like, okay, no, he's dead. You know, it doesn't look like they're like rushing him off to medical facilities. I'm going to be clear. I have never seen the sequel, nor do I have any interest in the sequel. So if he shows up there, I don't know. Uh, spoiler alert. Yeah, he does. All right. Um, 
but I always thought it was very clear that he was dead. And I, I don't know if that was always originally their intention. Also turns out Dr. Oaken is uh, gay and had a husband that whole time. And like his husband stayed with him. And like 30 years later, he wakes up from a coma. <laughs> I mean, it, it was kind of, I mean, for me, it was kind of fun saying, hey, Data's in this movie. <laughs> yeah, um, Brent Spiner, around this time, and I just found this out uh, because of some press he was doing about Star Trek Picard, but apparently when he was negotiating uh, for uh, the Star Trek movies to play Data... Uh, he demanded that they find him bigger roles, and people always thought that this was one of the bigger roles, but it's not done by Paramount, or else we couldn't talk about it for this show. It was done for Fox, and he got this role on his own. Um, this was not part of his his deal for Star Trek. So, uh, yeah, go Brent Spiner. Uh and uh, the character he plays, which I always thought was interesting, was based on uh, one of the crew members that worked behind the scenes on Stargate. Hmm. So he's actually doing kind of a, a version of a, of a real dude. Hmm. That's not just Brent Spiner coming up with a character. He's apparently like mimicking a dude that Roland Emmerich worked with and wanted to uh, put into the movie. And the guy's last name is Oaken. So this this is actually like an homage to a guy that uh, apparently Roland Emmerich just found super fascinating and thought would be the type of guy who would work at Area 51 if it really existed. I mean, I love how this whole thing came about because the story goes that he was doing the press for Stargate and Emmerich was asked a question about whether he believed aliens actually existed or not. And that question stayed in his head, and he eventually came up with this movie. And then the fallout from this movie being that Siskel and Ebert trashed it, which led to Mayor Ebert and his assistant Gene in Godzilla. Yeah, I mean, I'm not actually sure I buy the explanation for how he came up with this movie. I mean, maybe parts of this movie, but I'm not, I'm not buying the idea that Roland Emmerich had never been like, Hmm, do I believe aliens exist? Because the dude had already made Stargate, which is a movie about like going to an alien world. Well, it's a movie about like, how did the pyramids get built? Well, you know, Aliens. <laughs> it had to be aliens. Like, here's a hint. Just because white people didn't build it doesn't mean it was aliens. Like. True. You know, come on. Come on. Like, ancient humans were smart. They built things. Get over it. Um, Roland Emmerich has never met a conspiracy theory he didn't like. So... You know, maybe on that tour, somebody was like, well, you know, Area 51. And he was like, what is Area 51? And they told him and he was like, I should make a movie about it. You know, maybe that I buy. But the fact that he had never thought about whether or not he believes in aliens, I don't buy. Because that seems silly. 
Um, but, but, but like I know. said, the 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 pettiness of Roland Emmerich to take the two most famous film critics of the time and make them and make fun of them in his next movie, um, as 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 Roger Ebert would later say, didn't even have the balls to kill him off. Oh, yeah, well, because he's petty, but he also really wants you to like him and give his movies good reviews, please. Didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course it's not going to work because it's, like, super obvious, but... <laughs> One thing that I had completely forgotten, and you had mentioned, I had discussed, thought about this when I was watching the rewatch, and then you tested me about it, is we have uh, baby Mae Whitman as uh, the president's daughter. And she would go on to have a very successful voice acting career. We talked about one of her projects. She is Amity in the Owl House. She is also the voice of Tinkerbell for the Tinkerbell movies. Most people might know her as the voice of Katara in Avatar The Last Airbender. So she has a pretty good career for herself going these days. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just so funny that like we just talked about her and I had forgotten that like she was the the little girl in this. Also, it's really funny that I am currently, as we're recording this, doing a uh, Battlestar Galactica rewatch, the updated early 2000s Ronald D. Moore reboot from Sci-Fi Channel. And, of course, the president's wife in here, uh, the first lady, is played by Mary McDonnell, who was uh, President Rosalind in that series. And, I mean, just an outstanding actress. Um, so, it's it's always been interesting to go back and watch her as the first lady here. And I'm like, you know, they would have immediately just done so much better if she had been the president. Not to discount Bill Pullman, who I absolutely love. <laughs> uh, Bill, Pull Bill Pullman has been one of my favorite actors since Spaceballs. I mean, a yeah you you got you gotta you gotta love him because I mean, you know, Spaceballs, and then he's just in everything. I mean, you know, we while we you were sleeping, and yeah, we already talked about him in Newsies and and everything. As well, but even uh, I mean, Bill Pullman even has a connection to Doctor Who because he was in Torchwood Miracle Day. I mean, yeah, the the less said about Miracle Day, the better. But true, but yeah, it, it, it is a connection. It, it's a connection, and we will we will mention it, and then we will swiftly move on to happier thoughts. <laughs> um, and you know, any day that you get to talk about Jeff Goldblum is a good day. Yeah, I mean the 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 love triangle that they have between Jeff Goldblum and Bill Pol Pullman and um what's the other actress name? Margaret Collin. It feels like I want to see a movie about that. You have this idea of a ex-soldier up becoming politician in Whit in Whitmore. You have David who is this MIT level genius who is deciding to just work at a as a repair guy in a TV studio. Meanwhile, his ex-wife Constance is the press secretary to the president. 
And then they had a fight at some point in the past because he thought his wife was having an affair with Whitmore and punched him in the face. Like I, I mean, love he that. wasn't the president at the time. <laughs> uh, honestly, honestly, yeah. Judd Hirsch is one of my favorite performances in this movie. Just that whole playing the 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 father, Jeff Goldblum's father, in here, and just just like you punched the president. He wasn't the president then. You punched the president. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who doesn't love Judd Hirsch? You know. Yeah. I mean, I I grew up on Taxi, so that that's just, you know. But, I mean, also, who doesn't want to find themselves in a love triangle with Bill Pullman and Jeff Goldblum? True. Like, I mean, I, 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 I'm you... very, I'm very interested in, like, what else happened in that, in that relation. They give us so little, and, and, and but it's, it, 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 it's one of those things that I had forgotten about the movie, and it made me think about, like, what happened there? I don't want aliens. I want the prequel novel of the love triangle <laughs> between Constance and David and Thomas Whitmore. That's, yeah. That's what I want. Um, I, 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 do not, I do not care at all about the boring aliens in this movie. That's an entire season of the West Wing. <laughs> yeah, that is great. Like, I I don't want it to be written by Aaron Sorkin either. I just want, nor do I want it to be written by Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin. But I want I want competent, interesting people to write <laughs> this weird love triangle between these three characters. Um, and there's still animosity between all three of them when they when they meet up. It's like again, three years divorced, yet uh, Jeff Goldblum's character is still wearing that wedding band. And well, the interesting thing is, is that we know that Jeff Goldblum's character David wants to be like he wants to save the world, and she wants to go into like normal american politics and they she's mad at him for not being ambitious enough and she starts saying like you could have gone into research and development and stuff like that and i'm like ooh i can see where this is going and i'm fully on david's side they both want to save the world they guess have different ways of going about it she wants to do it through the world of politics he wants to do it without the 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 corporate hierarchy without having to for lack of a better term sell his soul to a corporate master yeah and one of them is right and it's jeff goldblum so i mean team jeff goldblum but he but... still works for a cable news network well no i mean I always thought it was like a cable cover. Like, does he work for like CNN or something? Is that he, what you got? That's the. I mean, he works for a television station that is broadcasting the news. This MIT level graduate, essentially being the repairman at a TV studio. I mean, it seems to me like everybody kind of misunderstands what he does. But I think he's maybe higher up than everybody gives him credit for. Mm. 
you know, it's like, I think they kind of want him to be like, well, you could have been Steve Jobs as a CEO or whatever. And he's like, you know, I'm the vice president of fixing stuff for CNN or whatever. You know, it's like, I have a feeling he's probably like a, like a really respectable job for normal people. But for the woman who's like literally sitting right hand to the president, maybe, you know, and then, of mm. course, his dad, I think his dad just doesn't understand what he does. I think his dad's like, you know, you you fix the TV, you know, you you wiggle the rabbit ears and it, it makes the signal like I, I just I just think that like. Judd Hirsch's character just is like, you know, you do something newfangled with the computers and stuff. You make the thing do the thing. Yeah, it's magic. You know, you 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 wiggle the wand around and it and it makes the screen go on. You know, it's I think it's that kind of thing from his dad. But I think from the ex-wife, it's just like, you know, you should be a gajillionaire running the world and jetting off to, you know, the g7 conference to talk with other billionaires about billionaire things and he's like yeah i don't want to do that that's you, sh that's you should be musk you should be zuckerberg but it, yeah and he's like no i'm i'm happier where i am doing the things that i you know i'm working on my yeah, own he, projects and he even says that i'm happy where i'm at you weren't and that was just an he and and they make it they both straight up admit that they still love each other, that the love was never, the love never left them. It was just the, the professional ambitions were going in two very far different directions that at least one of them was unwilling to follow. And based on the attitude that she gives off, it seems like she was the one that divorced him because she's like, oh, oh, God, my you, you say he's my husband and he's calling me. Oh, God. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's still wearing his, his wedding, wedding ring. ring. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think I, that's that's kind of interesting. I do like how she even says you could have been part of something special. He says I was. It just looks right at her. I was part of something special. And it's like, even as a kid, it was like, that is such a boss move, but that is also a very cold thing to say to your ex-wife. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, but also with these things, like, He's still in pain. I can get that. Yeah, he, one, he's still in pain. I mean, it's been four years. Maybe move on. You're Jeff Goldblum in the 90s. I mean, Jeff Goldblum in 2023 can still get it. But, you know, you are you are Jeff Goldblum coming off a Jurassic Park looking dude. Maybe, like, find a woman who's less that woman, you know? Hmm. And maybe move the hell on, like, go to a protest and pick up a chick. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, Yeah, and <laughs> it feels like Roland Emmerich doesn't want us to like this character. 
just because he gets very annoying with his level of environmentalism. Which like, is weird because the rest of Roland Emmerich's movies are like global warming is real and it's going to kill you tomorrow. Because like the first thing we see is he gets in there and and uh, he Harvey Firestein, yes, the Harvey Firestein, uh, you know, he throws a, a Coke can in a trash and he gets picks it up, say, hey, we have a basket labeled recycling for a reason. He's yelling at him. Like, Yelling at all of it of the other coworkers of how of how they ignore the, the 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 recycling can, and he talks about how certain foods will kill you, and his whole drunken rant about dropping nuclear bombs on the aliens and nuclear winter, and he also bikes everywhere. He doesn't have yeah. a car. Mm-hmm. He bikes everywhere. He has to go to Judd Hirsch to get his car to get to the to DC because. He only has the bike, you know. Mm. Um, he's constantly uh, talking to his dad about smoking the cigars because, you know, your health and the environment, and mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, but he, he, they, they make it so annoying that maybe you're not supposed to like him. But then he's the guy that saves the day at the end by throwing all of that away and starting smoking a cigar. Oh, I could, I could get used to liking this. Well, I think that Roland, like a lot of people, had the turnaround on the climate change thing. You know, we we talked about his turnaround on the the climate change thing, you know, when we talked about Day After Tomorrow. Which is that he's kind of there, but he's he's in a, a weird, like, pseudoscience part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it's going to happen, but it's going to happen in this, like, real quick finger snap kind of way based on pseudoscience. And so it's like, no, you don't need that. You just have to look out the window kind of thing. But in the 90s, it seems that he was very much in the... Like South Park man bear pig kind of thing, mm. where it was like, oh look at Al Gore, he's ranting about man bear pig again. You know, where it's like if you've seen any recent South Park, like now they're like, well, man bear pig's coming to kill us all. Might as well, yeah, like, yeah, that's that's a thing. You know, like. They've turned around on it too. Yeah, one of the kind few, of like what, look one outside. Few, one of the few times South Park actually made a public apology for someone they they made fun of. Yeah, you were right. <laughs> it's it's kind of the same the same thing I think. And so I think at the time, yes, they were trying to be like, we have to teach this guy to be a little more ambitious and a little more loosey-goosey about things. And, you know, he's got to learn to lighten up a little bit if he wants to get the girl and, you know... Get that stick out of his butt. Yeah, and earn the respect of the fighter pilot cool president, you know? Because that's kind of his... uh, Jeff Goldblum's entire character arc is he's the... He's the the guy that doesn't even notice that there are 
aliens because he's so busy looking at binary code, the nerd. You know? Yeah. But it's like eventually like the the cool black guy is like punching him on the shoulder and being like, Yeah, you did it, man, and he's learned to get over his air sickness, which is totally a thing you can do by just being cool. You know, like Yeah. <laughs> and like instead of the president wanting to get into a fist fight with it, the president's like, Yeah, you did cool, because I'm a fighter pilot in the military and you are now you know, I'm I'm shaking your hand. You know, it's like <laughs> you can tell that that's like where where Roland's brain is in that. Like he has to he has to earn his way into the cool guys club. Like stop being a nerd. Like okay, yeah, you're still a nerd because you beat the aliens with a computer virus, but also you know you're you're slightly less nebbishy now. <laughs> like. But I, I, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is Judd Hurst, you know, pretty much telling off every every member of the president's cabinet says, you'd all be dead if it wasn't for my son. He was the one that cracked the code. He's the one that, that figured out their plan. You should at least listen to what he has to say. Yeah, that is one of the most badass scenes. And also him going like, hey... You've had an alien spaceship on Earth this entire time, and what have you done about it? And then Bill Pullman being like, uh, Sir, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. I can guarantee you nobody's ever had an alien, you know. And then, of course, the little wormy guy's like, Well, that's not entirely true. And I kind of want to go like, Excuse me, wormy guy? At what point... In the aliens have just shown up over Earth timeline, were you going to inform the president that we know about aliens? Plausible deniability. <laughs> okay, there's plausible deniability and there's like aliens have just shown up in the sky. Maybe we loop the president in. And there's also this this thing from the first half of the movie of the White House entire staff acting just short of saving people. Like if we had told called the evacuation five minutes earlier, more people would have been alive. Now they're all dead. If we if you had told me about the aliens, you could have stopped all of this from happening. It's it's it's. And this tends to happen with a lot of action movies involving the president that the bureaucracy of the president's office somehow doesn't work and you need to be a manly man to get things done, which, you know, we tried that in real life and look, look at the mess we got. You already mentioned the, you know, Siskel and Ebert thing, but apparently wormy guy here was like another one of those things where they put somebody in that they hated to like be like hey look at this guy we hate we're gonna put him in a movie because apparently there was a guy that was some sort of executive when they were working on stargate mm -hmm. and he made them edit the movie which is like why there's like different edits of the movie but 
he did one of those like, you know, oh, edit it before it goes into theaters and they didn't like that edit. And eventually he got fired and they were like, ha ha. So that bit in the movie where the Bill Pullman's like, you're fired. And he's like, you can't do that. And he's like, I'm the president. I can do whatever I want. Huh? You know, mm-hmm. um, apparently that was them being like, take that wormy guy. We put you in our movie so we could fire you. Except like nobody really gets it until they mention it in like a director's commentary or something. <laughs> I mean the the uh, then we see him in the in the little prayer circle that Judge Hertz is doing, and he goes, "But but I'm not Jewish, and no one's perfect," <laughs> which is one of my favorite lines in the film. <laughs> that one got me in the theater. Where it's like, "Nah, nobody's perfect." I was like, "Ah," but the uh, the thing about it is though is that that's always kind of bothered me about the film as far as bad writing because I'm like, okay, there's the guy being wormy and you can understand like, Oh, I'm a wormy little politician guy who wants to, you know, further my own career or something. You know, they've got the plausible deniability as the reason that the president wasn't told when he came into office. Okay. I can buy that. But when the, alien spaceships are hanging in the air above major cities. That is the point you inform the president. No. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just logically speaking, Hey, we've got Brent Spiner in a basement somewhere. Maybe we should call him. That's not a crazy idea, right? Yeah. I mean, you're right, but I don't know. I I get that the movie wants that joke of like sir don't be crazy that's a nutty conspiracy theory you know mm-hmm. and the the point is like they keep doing that throughout the film at various points like there's an entire character based on i was abducted by aliens and everyone thinks he's crazy yeah except you literally have proof of aliens cuz they are in the freaking sky. And the the guy, like, okay, when they are asking for pilots, and Randy Quaid's like, hey, I'm a pilot, whatever, I'm drunk, and I fly a crop duster, but, you know, I was in Nam and whatever, and all. And then he goes like, and I just want to say on a personal note, they abducted me and did things to me, and I would like revenge. Now, okay, If he says this and the enemy is, like, another country invading the U.S., that's a crazy thing to say. You roll your eyes and you go, are we sure we need this extra pilot? Are we really that desperate? But when the enemy is aliens, maybe the dude is not crazy anymore. I mean, even the film is isn't sure if he was actually abducted by aliens or if he's just crazy. And even if he was, are we sure it's these aliens? But the thing is is the film kind of does point to yes, these aliens because these aliens have been coming to earth since the 60s. We have the proof. There is a ship 
There is, they, you know, and mm-hmm. also the aliens, even though it's not specifically stated in the movie, the aliens seem to know way too much about humanity. Like, okay. They know where the biggest cities in the world are, and that's where they put their 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 ships over. Well, no, that's that's easy. Knowing where the biggest cities in the world are is easy. If you have basic, like, thermal scanning equipment, you just go like, oh, there's concentrated amounts of humans in this area. Let's target that. But I mentioned to you that the choice of landmarks that get blown up is kind of bizarre. Okay? But but the White House kind of makes sense because it's like a symbol. No, no, no. That's what I mean. Mm. So think about it from the alien point of view. If you show up to a planet and you're just there to blow things up and get resources, okay? If you're looking for a central thing to blow up, you don't know anything about this planet other than you want to exterminate dominant life form. You have identified human as dominant life form. You have identified these structures as structures built by dominant life form. You are going to either blow up the tallest thing in the area or the thing that has most creatures around it, considering, okay, that's going to be a central hub. And what this is going to mean is you're either going to, like with New York or something, at the time, that was going to be the World Trade Center at the time. This was 1996. That doesn't have any horrible connotation yet. That hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Okay. But instead, they pick the Empire State Building, which is a bit more symbolic of New York as old New York rather than commercial New York, okay? It's a bit more visually spectacular on film because of the uh, architectural style, okay? They pick the White House in D.C. Now, the tallest thing in that particular area would be, like, the Washington Monument. It's a good thing to focus on visually. And it's kind of centrally located. Mm -hmm. But they pick the White House. All right? If you're picking stuff that, like, humans are swarming towards, that would be a transportation hub. So you would blow up like an airport, maybe, or a train station or something. Some kind of jammed interstate exchange, maybe. I don't know. But they picked the White House, which is the center of power. So it seems like the aliens know something about humanity. So they've been coming here for decades to research the planet, apparently, And they seem to know something about, you know, uh, nation capitals are not always the most um, 
populace. Like, it makes sense that they would go to New York and L.A., but D.C. is not the most populous. But it is a center of power. You know, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the Capitol Records building. And also it says they, they blew up NORAD. The aliens knew where NORAD was. They had not blown up Houston yet because we blew that up. You know, the the U.S. blew that up with the nuke in the context of the movie. Mm -hmm. But the aliens blew up NORAD to take out the vice president, the vice president and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and stuff. Okay, And they bypassed several large uh, city centers that we know had not yet been wiped out. To come toward Area 51 toward the end of the movie when they send out the Morse code saying, hey, we know we're we're mounting an attack. How did the aliens know that? Okay, so they're they're monitoring. It's, It's obvious that they're monitoring. So what I'm saying is it does seem like the movie without explicitly saying it. Is saying that, yeah, Randy Quaid probably was abducted by aliens at some point. But why the Capitol Records building? It is one of the tallest buildings in L.A. All right. Fair enough. I mean, I mean, it's it's just if if you're if you're going for that and it's also one of the most recognizable landmarks, too. So if you're going to blow up something that says L.A., you've either got the Capitol Records building or the Hollywood sign. Yeah. You know, it's like. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, the, the, and I think of that scene and, and I think of like that news footage they had before of the lady, I hope they bring back Elvis. It's like, you know what? There are people who are that stupid and would do that. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is that we see where they're positioned around the world. And, like, it's positioned over the Eiffel Tower in Paris. The Eiffel Tower is nothing. It's it's scaffolding with a restaurant. So the, so the aliens are blowing up symbols of humanity. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems that way, which is not oh. really tactically that interesting. Roland Emmerich wants to create a narrative and wants you to feel things. So let's blow up buildings that you know. Yeah, it's it's there for the audience rather than than tactically speaking. Mm-hmm. Also, can I just say I'm glad the dog survives, but the dog and the Vivica Fox and the little kid should not have survived. I I know of all the stupid things in the movie that are not scientifically accurate. We know the memes. We've seen the nostalgia critic review. We already know the jokes. But no, I'm just saying, like, uh, maybe that's, like, special alien fire or whatever. But um, all of the oxygen in that room would have been sucked out and they would have been very, very dead. But... Turning it around, would you have liked this movie less if they killed off the dog? Well, I mean, they killed off the gay, so. True. 
Although it would be kind of funny if this entire movie was like John John Wick versus Aliens. That would be the next movie. It's John- like Will Smith is just like, you killed my dog. <laughs> Welcome to Earth. You know, like... <laughs> it'll be... It- It'll be John Wick and Dominic Turturro versus Aliens. Didn't they already send a car to space in those movies? I've never seen a single one of the Fast and Furious. Not yet. Not uh, neither. I haven't seen. I've only seen the first two, and I have not seen any of the others. I I swear, somebody told me they sent a car to space, and I don't know if they were like pulling my leg or like being serious. But at this point, I would believe anything about those movies. Apparently, Vin, apparently, Vin Diesel has like legit superpowers in those movies now. Yeah, I don't know, but um, I need Disney to own those movies so that like we can make fun of them. But <laughs> the um, but the thing is, it's like let let's talk real quick about the the kill your gaze in this because there are so many like. I don't know if it's borderline homophobic or just outright homophobic jokes. Like, you've got your Harvey Firestein. And he's full Harvey Firestein. Well, I mean, he is overly Harvey Firestein because I'm a big fan of Harvey Firestein. We've talked about him before. And Amazingly he, well, he am- is not like that just in his normal life. I mean, he's he's very, you know, out and proud. But... This is, like, extremely over the top for Harvey Firestein. But, you know, I've I've talked about it before, and Harvey Firestein has that kind of infamous quote that I will paraphrase, which is, you know, representation however you can. So, you know, even if it's kind of this mincing weirdo in this film that is every stereotype rolled into one yeah at least at least you're here (laughs) yeah but he also is you know like most people he's scared about what's going on he's he tries to hide and you know the it doesn't end up well for a lot of the people who try to hide in this entire movie i mean you can't really blame them though they don't really have any they don't really have any information because the government is not forthcoming with any information. They are too late to act. Nobody really knows what's going on. You know, nobody is out on the street coordinating the evacuation. Yeah, which is what I mentioned earlier, is that the government acts just a little too late. And in the in the the the, the way that this movie is trying to portray American bureaucracy. In that yeah. Regard. The the thing is, is like, okay, so I live in an area where we frequently have to do evacuations because of hurricanes, mm. right? Okay. And we have a system set up that if there's an evacuation, we have what's called contraflow on the interstates, which is that they will put gates down to say you cannot go a certain direction on the roads and all roads only go one direction. 
So if you're going on the interstate and you know how usually like it's a divided interstate and one way goes, you know, north and one way goes south in ContraFlow, every way goes north now. And they put up gates and they say you can't enter going south. Everything only goes north. Because we are evacuating. And, you know, stuff like that. Okay? So, in a proper evacuation, that's what would happen. You would set up barricades and you would be like, northbound traffic only. Every single lane, every single side, we are only going north. Okay? Because we have systems set up here because we have to do it so often. You know? Evacuation called. Contraflow in place. You can only go north. All right. And if they tried that in the, in most parts of the U.S., considering how certain people act, they would just openly fight it. You can't tell me where to go. You can't tell me what to do. And it would hold. And the whole. Let thing me tell would, you, if we can do it down here, we can do it anywhere. <laughs> like, let me just let me just tell you that. Okay, we have people who try to fight it. It still gets done. So I'm I'm just saying, like, you know, you see that scene where where you know Judd Hirsch is like, you know, we're the only idiots going, you know, this other way. Everybody's going in in a properly done evacuation, that lane wouldn't be open. You know, it would all be going the same way. That's what I mean when I say like nobody was was directing that, you know. Because in a proper evacuation, there would be no way to go the other direction. That's what you see when everybody's kind of getting stuck like that, is that there's no plan in place to take over, like, all public transit systems, all bus systems, all roadways and stuff, and just be like, everybody's going this one way. That That's it. You know, outbound only, which is what we do here. You know, all the bus systems get taken over, all the the traffic lanes get taken over, and it's just outbound only. It works really well when it's set up and done properly, but um, no nobody planned for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you you see that with the Harvey Firestein character is that he gets caught in the traffic and, you know, he looks up and he sees it coming and he goes like, well, crap, you know, like the, this is it. And that's your, your bury your gaze moment for that. But also there's that, that joke. Cause of course we were still in the don't ask, don't tell bit, uh, in the military at the time where we had the, you know, Harry Connick Jr. character discover the, the engagement ring, the engagement ring that, uh, Will Smith's character has to give to Vivica Fox. And, He's, he's on, one knee, he's on yeah. one knee and he's like, this is an engagement ring. And there's just the dude in the back that walks in on the scene and he, he holds up his hands like, hey, I didn't see nothing. I'm not asking. I'm not telling later. It's the, it's the end of the world. I don't care. 
yeah and so there's there's that and you know of course at the time everybody would be like okay haha funny joke because we know this is actually about his girlfriend and we know these two aren't a couple but also that's a nice dude because he's just overlooking the situation he's not going to cause problems for them don't ask don't tell you know whatever but the thing is is that I, I know you haven't seen the, the sequel and, you know, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to the sequel or anything, but I will say that, like, they tried to make it better in the sequel by being like, hey, gay people exist now and they're not a punchline. With the exception of uh, Dr. Oaken and his husband, I don't really think it worked well. I kind of liked Dr. Oaken and his husband, but um, everybody else that, you know, whenever they tried to be like, look, we're down with the gays, you know, it, <laughs> it didn't really work for me. It was so weird in, in this one that I, I just, I didn't, I didn't particularly like it. On that, <laughs> I'm going to put this, you know, like the big, selling point of this movie, as you as you mentioned earlier, was Will Smith. He was, like, the star of the movie. He was the top billing in this movie. And he doesn't show up until half an hour into the movie. I just find that... In, I mean, it's an interesting way of going about it. Like, you see Jeff Goldblum before you see Will Smith. You see uh, Bill Pullman before you see Will Smith. And Will Smith is the guy that gets top billing in this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of like the way he's he's introduced. I do like because they live in L.A., so quakes. So the, the alien ships coming in is causing a quake. Obviously, Will Smith is not used to this because he's only in L.A. because he's on the military base. And she's like, no, nah, it's not even a, a three-pointer. Go back to bed. I like how many of the... Um people are just kind of not aware of what's going on. Like, Jeff Goldblum just doesn't even realize there's aliens for a while. Like and he then was, it, it, yeah, it he takes knows. Will Smith for a minute to figure out what's going on. Like, Goldblum, he's just thinking, oh, yeah, someone's trying to, someone, there's an interference with the signal, but the signal's going to go away in a few hours, so we don't have to do anything. Until they realize, oh, oh, this is a countdown. Oh, the aliens are going to attack. Checkmate. Yeah, and then the the funny thing is, is I love that I love the little boy coming in and being like, "I'm shooting aliens," and Will Smith's like, "Oh, you're shooting aliens in that queue. You got a little ray gun. You're going outside shooting aliens and everything." <laughs> because I think one of the best edits in the movie is like. Will Smith and Vivica Fox standing there, and they're staring at the the spaceship like, oh, crap, it all just hit the fan. And then the little boy comes in between them with the ray gun, he's like, bang, bang! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and then it just, like, edits real quick. And I was like, that's actually a really good, a really good uh, edit there. 
Uh, I mean, the relationship between the two characters throughout the movie is 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 very it's it's, it's kind of sweet, and you know, and it's it that you really I mean, I get that her being a stripper is supposed to be a shock. You know, there you know, uh, he goes to marry her. He gets his rejection letter from NASA because he wants to be an astronaut. And Harry Connick Jr. tells him, "Hey, you know, if if you go through with this." You'll never make it to NASA if you marry a stripper. And then the hard cut to the strip club where Vivica Fox is just dancing there and no one is paying attention to her because everyone's watching the news, seeing what the aliens were going to do. And rather than be worried about the aliens, her thing is like, I came in today and I'm getting nothing. I know no tips, no nothing. It's like, what was the point? Well, I actually really like... And and always have. I think, weirdly, this film was probably my first introduction to somebody just being like, yeah, I'm a sex worker and I have no shame about it. Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah, the, 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 she has the conversation with the first lady. Yeah. Um, because she says she's a dancer and the first lady immediately goes like, ah, oh, ballet. You know, it's like, Okay, weirdo, there's, like, so many other types of dance other than ballet. She could be a tap dancer, she could be a showgirl, she could be chorus line on Broadway, like, it's like, (laughs) you immediately go to ballet, like, all right. I think it's supposed to be the contrast of somebody who associated with this movie seeing exotic dancing as low class so we need to counteract that with something we consider high class well but the thing is like there's all kinds of dance that is like higher class quote unquote than exotic dancing you know she could have been like ah theater you know or whatever and she'd be like no exotic and it still kind of hits the same you know and she even says you know she's not ashamed of it you know because for her. It pays the bills, and her son is worth it, you know? Yeah. Which I I love. I'm like, yeah, there is absolutely no shame in that. I mean, in the last three years, we've seen people make more money from sex work than they would in the, fil- in the, in the fields that they got their degrees in. Also, there has just been a uh, group of strippers in LA that has just unionized. Go them. Yeah, no, I mean it's incredible. It's like one of the uh, I think it's the first in the nation. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, no, it's it's really it's really great. But I I really like that she's completely unapologetic about it even in front of the first lady. The first lady's like, "Oh, I'm sorry." You must feel so ashamed to be in front of the first lady and be like, oh, I'm a stripper. And she's like, yeah, don't try to shame me. <laughs> like, zero shame in what I do for work. That was kind of one of one of my first entries into somebody just being like, yeah, no, sex work is legit work. And I am, I am perfectly okay with it. And you're not going to shame me for it. Which is a very bizarre woke stance for a Roland Emmerich movie. I was, like, really shocked by that. One of the first things we we hear 
when we when we get to President Whitmore at the beginning of the film is his approval ratings are kind of diving down because uh, the American people voted for him because he was a young guy, a go getter, a you know the, the, he sold himself on being a manly man and. Now, however many years into his presidency, I assume three based on the Goldblum divorce, that he's kind of seen as weak. He's compromised himself too many times, that he's lost the faith of the American people. And really, he's just, you just see him, a president that generally is doing what he believes in, is in the best interest of the people. And in some cases, that is involving compromise and seemingly looking weak in certain scenarios just to get the job done. And then, and that goes into his whole thing throughout the movie of trying to find his spine, question mark? Standing up to his cabinet, saying, I'm a pilot, I belong in the air, doing that big impassioned speech and, and whatnot. It's a very interesting story that they have for the president in this movie. Well, I mean, remember when this came out and that he was supposed to be a veteran of the Gulf War. He was supposed to be super young and, you know, military background. They elected him to be a soldier, not a politician. Eh. Again, well, we've, we've, we've done the let's vote for the guy we think is the manly man over the guy with the experience. Look where we ended up. Well... Also, I mean, you know, we've we've got to we got to put it back into the the '90s again. I mean, I, I didn't mention the the Clinton scandal, so this was right around that time. Well, but remember also that Clinton was kind of appealing to the younger, hipper kind of. Thing here playing sax on Arsenio Hall. Uh, yeah, it, it's that kind of thing, and going on MTV and answering the boxers or briefs kind of questions and stuff like that. And so this seems like a direct kind of nod to that, but also the fact that. Clinton had that younger idea, but he wasn't manly. He wasn't a veteran. And it had been a while since we had had a president that had had any military experience. It's a bit interesting to see this because you want to have, in the context of this film... You want to have the president be a hero. So even though he's not the one that gets the final, you know, hero blow off because... Randy Clay gets that, yeah. 
Yeah, but because that's the sacrifice play. Yeah. And you have to have the the president survive so that he can, you know, have that moment of glory, you know, at the end. I mean, it would be a year before we would get Harrison Ford in Air Force One. Yeah, which is along the, the same lines. The thing is, is that we have the idea of the strong man, and notice it's it's always a man in this, um, has to be willing to make the sacrifice play. So even though the president survives, he's willing to be up there among the men. You know? Mm-hmm. He's willing to put his life on the line. Um, Randy Quaid is a screw-up throughout the movie, but in the end, he's willing to make the sacrifice play for his family and his country. And that, you know, ends up redeeming him. With Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith's characters, they've had their their issues throughout the movie, both of them, that they have to overcome. But in the end, they are also willing to make the sacrifice play, even though they get out safely. They are willing to give up their lives to take out the mothership. You know, they prove themselves because they are willing to to do that, thinking that they will not be able to get out. And so all of our heroes in the movie prove that they are, you know, they are willing to, to you know, give themselves fully. Mm. And so that is that is what makes them the, the heroes. It's kind of an, an interesting thing because it does kind of continue throughout the rest of Roland's films. Mm. That that seems to be his biggest uh, through line is that even if the hero makes it out in the end through some kind of deus ex machina or whatever, is that they are always willing and ready for that to be like, you know, okay, I'm willing to to sacrifice myself to do this because that is the right thing to do. And that is the- what the manly man does. And the nerd character needs to learn how to be a manly man. Whether it's, you know, Jeff Goldblum or Matthew Broderick, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that is kind of the thing. And every time you you watch one of his films, there's always some character in there who either has to redeem themselves by making the sacrifice or is pushed up to the point where you know they would have but then we we pull it back through some, you know, miracle thing so that they can have the happy ending and get the girl or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you know, we, we saw it in Day After Tomorrow as well, mm-hmm. um, where it was like, you know, everybody's willing to, to go out there, you know, I have to go find my son no matter what it costs me and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's yeah. like, well, eventually it, it turns out all right. But Different Quaid, different Quaid in that movie. Different Quaid in that movie. <laughs> can we can we just point out that, like, nobody, I, I think, 
Well, I mean, probably people who knew him, but I, I don't think anybody saw that Randy Quaid was just playing himself in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of sad. I was trying to avoid going there, but you went there, so. I mean, I'm not going to get too deep into it. You know, if you want to look it up, look it up. But, you know, wow. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and, and one last uh, reference that, that I had forgotten about is when uh, um, Jeff Goldblum turns his computer on, we get Hello Dave, the 2001 Space Odyssey reference. Yeah, he's got he's got a, a opening screen that looks like Hal from 2001. Um, the, you know, the thing I didn't know about this uh, since we're talking about uh, people that we see all the time uh frank welker he is your childhood bow before him uh he's in this as some special vocal effects probably the dog probably some aliens yeah not not really sure what but there's there's some you know noises here and there and it's probably your frank welker when you need an animal or a monster noise you call frank welker yeah so Kiki, let's uh, let, let's wrap up this one. Kiki, does Independence Day have the magic? I'm gonna say that this movie kind of. I'm of two minds about. I'm not entirely sure this is a great movie. However, I can't help but have a special place in my heart for this movie. It is such a flawed movie, and yet I love it so desperately. I'm very similar in that. Is this a well-written movie? Honestly, no, it's not. But it's a movie that you can turn your brain off and eat popcorn and just indulge in the ridiculousness of the premise. It's a, as I said before, this is a summer blockbuster popcorn flick. This is, you, you go to the, you know, when it was out, you go to the theater, you get your popcorn, and you enjoy. You're not in this movie to learn anything. You're not in this movie to get a life lesson. You just want to see the, the, the how the humans kill the aliens. Which is fine. Not everything needs to make you think. You can turn your brain off. It's fine. Is this a movie that, if it wasn't called Independence Day and based on July 4th, that it would be as remembered and has be and have become an annual tradition among people? Probably not. I am going to say that I think the reason why Stargate and Independence Day have such a, a place in my heart are they they are probably the two least offensive Roland Emmerich movies. Before he really goes full Roland Emmerich. Yeah, I think these are the two where his, like, conspiracy theory stuff is, like, it's a sprinkling. It, it's, it's, it's a little bit of flavor. And then he just, like, jumps off a cliff afterwards. I mean, there's, like, Godzilla, which is, you know, it's a bad movie, but it's not really, like, a conspiracy theory movie. But then, like, when he goes full Roland Emmerich, 
after Godzilla, like it's it's just absolutely bug nutty. I see it in the same way like George Lucas in that once you really reach a certain level of success, people stop telling you no. And then and and that's where the trouble comes in. I would like to formally submit my application as a person who tells Roland Emmerich no. That can be my career. I will happily do that. Because if we go back to the days of Stargate and Independence Day, I'm not saying they're the best movies ever, but they are enjoyable movies. So, you know, if if studios want to hire me to be the person that tells Roland Emmerich no, I can do that. So, I mean, yeah, again, if, if, if you love this movie, great. But for me, it, it has magic in that it's a movie that you can turn your brain off for a few hours and eat your, you know, since this is 4th of July, you know, your bar, your hot dog on the barbecue, your hamburger, what have you, your, your alcoholic beverage of choice, if you drink, and just enjoy the movie. And that's fine. That's, that's, if that's magic, that's magic. I mean, it's magic for me. I enjoy this movie. Every time I watch this movie, I enjoy this movie. So, you know, I'm not putting it down for Criterion Collection, <laughs> but if this movie's on, I'm going to stop and watch it to the end. So, let's move on to next week. Boy, are we going into a completely different direction here. Ever After, it's a Cinderella story. Ever After, a Cinderella story. So, it's uh, Drew Barrymore, a Cinderella. Yeah. How, how how many Cinderella movies are we up to now? Ooh, I don't we, know. We're gonna we're gonna have to do an official count for next week. And, and we haven't even reached the Disney remake yet. Yeah. <laughs> so that's gonna be a very interesting go a look back to is uh, ever after a Cinderella story. Come back for that next week, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. Podcasts are fun. But there's work to be done. We encourage you to get involved. Here are some organizations we support. The American Civil Liberties Union fights for the constitutional rights of all Americans. Find them at ACLU.org. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people find access to safe abortion services. Their site is abortionfunds.org. The Trevor Project provides a 24-7 crisis helpline for LGBTQ youth and education services for schools on LGBTQ issues. They can be found at thetrevorproject.org. Or find a way to help in your area. Is that uh, good or do, you, or do you want to do a third round? I think we can do, a, do, do that and you can piece it together from the two. All right, that sounds good. Let's let's stop the recording.